This is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest podcast of Around the World in 20 Minutes. Thank you for so much making this a part of your daily routine, and we're happy to keep them coming, uh, as I enjoy taking this journey through our fascinating new world with you. Today's one that comes from actual experience, and we'll try to kind of pepper the rest of these in with such things, because sometimes specific things that happen to you as you travel and live out in the broader kind of swashbuckling world actually apply to the work that you're doing. We recently uh, did a podcast that did very, very well, and thank you for that, uh, looking at the Lotus Eaters in Europe and the fact that AUKUS, the, tra- the strategic deal between the United States, the UK, and Australia, the Anglosphere, showed an Anglosphere on the rise even as the EU begins to fall. And while this makes perfect sense to anybody empirically following things, it doesn't make sense to the people falling, because one of the signs of decline is that you don't recognize it. Or as Alcoholics Anonymous would have it, the other way around, the first step in dealing with any problem is to recognize you have one. And the people in Europe, particularly in the ideas industry, are unaware that they have a problem at all. So bad is the decline that is set in. And I had an experience in the last couple of days that kind of confirms this. The names have been changed to protect the guilty, Um, because I'm not out to finger point or score at any one person's expense, but rather to make the broader point that President Macron of France is wrong. It isn't NATO that's brain dead. It's the European ideas industry, which doesn't seem the peril that Europe is in, the absolute decline that Europe faces, and in fact thinks it's rude of us to bring it up. And let's look at what happened. I was asked to comment on the aftermath of the German election, And while everyone else in the room was lauding Angela Merkel, I said, as you know, that she's Louis XV. This is a woman who never solved a problem in her life, but merely managed them, and that she threw plates in the air well, but like Louis XIII, after her, all these problems would come back to bite. And Europe's relative decline, which is what Europe, the position it was in when she came in, would now be seen as absolute decline very quickly. And you would have thought that everyone in the room had thought I was Charles Manson. And I thought about this as I was sitting there trying to listen and and make sense of the arguments against this. And the arguments against prove why the European ideas industry um, really isn't a, a term that really of art that should apply, because there were no ideas here. Merely offense at me mentioning that 25 years of decline ever happened. The first thing I noticed in the room with the people when I said this was that there was diversity of everything but thought in the room. There were people from all over Europe, men, women, middle class, rich, government workers, private sector people. But the one thing they all shared in common was a belief in the ever invincible European Union, that it would go from strength to strength and that further integration was inevitable, necessary and would lead to Europe's success. On these basic points, no one in the room but me had anything but agreement. And by me being outside that circle heretically, I was calling into question their very existence. Well, of course, if you believe this, if there's no diversity of opinion, what you end up with is a very blinkered view of yourself. It's inevitable. And worse, you have a blinkered view that is perpetually reinforced. Everyone looks at everyone else who nods and says things aren't as bad as John is saying. They may be bad, but these are little bumps along the way to the highway of European success, and we'll overcome them. Don't you agree? And then they would all agree as if the numbers of them being wrong made up for a lack of argument. These people who have this blinkered view of themselves that is perpetually reinforced by other EU true believers 
perpetually overrate EU importance wildly. They go back to the Cold War days, and most of them made their name in the Cold War days, when Europe was the cockpit of the argument between the Soviet Union and the United States. They still see it in this central role, even though the Indo-Pacific does cause them unease, they still see themselves as a central force in the universe when this ceased to be the case 20 years ago. Um, they're not analysts, they're cheerleaders. And cheerleaders make for bad analysts indeed. Um, I'll give you a few examples of this blinkered view uh, and the tortured logic that I dealt with. Generally at these meetings, and I mentioned this last time, there, there's a circular logic that goes as to why the EU is always on the up. If the EU fails over a point, if AUKUS, for instance, means that the EU's strategic bona fides are called into doubt by the rest of the world, if Australia, with a gun to its head, chooses the Anglister in the United States over the EU as a country or countries likely to deter China, and let's face it, nobody thinks the EU could deter anyone from doing anything, if it fails, this means it will succeed because the failure will spur the EU on to, you guessed it, ever greater integration, ever greater success, and failure will lead to success. Well, if it succeeds, of course, that proves that the EU is the greatest power in the world. So the logic goes like this. If we fail, we succeed. If we succeed, we succeed. And you have the outcome that you want. Back to point one, diversity of everything but thought, the EU will be successful. This is an analysis. This is a religion. And boy, was it on display the other night. The second bit of tortured logic is that the myriad intellectual errors of the past don't matter. Someone brought up to me the Financial Times newspaper, that repository of all good conservative mainline establishment thought in Europe and the United States to some extent, as though that were an example. The FT said something. I broke in disdainfully saying the FT was wrong about Trump, wrong about Brexit, wrong about Afghanistan, wrong about Iraq, wrong about Libya. Why don't we spend time talking about people who are right and not people who obviously don't understand the world in any way? And when I said this, they all looked shocked and then said the same very odd glazed over pod person robot response, which is that everyone makes mistakes and no one can tell the future. Well, let's think about that. Because we all make mistakes, we can't be critical of people who do nothing but make mistakes, point one. Point two, of course you can tell the future. This is what political risk analysts do. It's called a call record. And of course it's not perfect. It's an art and not a science. Like baseball, the best team is going to lose 50 games every year, win 110. And a lot of luck will go into those losses, just as some luck will go into you getting things right. But like baseball, over time, a political risk call record does point out the difference between good political risk analysts, great political risk analysts, and terrible political risk analysts. And what the folks want to do here is say, because everyone makes mistakes, we shouldn't bother looking at the record, and the future can never be looked at. My firm has gotten right 18 of the last 20 calls that we've made. The great thing about the internet is you can put this down to a date and a time. For instance, on the most recent German election, we said the most important thing businesses need to know is the number three, that there are going to be three groups negotiating. The Free Democrats and the Greens, the new up-and-coming parties, will negotiate with one of the Volkspartei, one of the People's Parties, either the SPD on the center-left or the CDU-CSU union on the center-right. But the, instead of two people negotiating, you're now going to have three 
And as I couldn't get three of my friends to agree on an ice cream flavor, trying to get three German parties to negotiate will mean very little will get done. Lowest common denominator things will get done. Incremental change will get done at best. Incoherence will happen at worst. And Europe simply won't move forward. Well, sure enough, the result was the Greens and the FDP are getting together to set out negotiating standards to deal with probably the SPD and Olaf Scholz in what will be a traffic light coalition, which is exactly what I wrote weeks and months before the election. That's getting a call right. That is foreseeable, that three is the new number, that it will lead to fewer policy outputs, a slower Germany, even less policy relevance, and that that will lead to European drift. That was entirely foreseeable. Acting as though this were a crystal ball or we're making it up and there's no rigor in it suits people who've been wrong about the rise of Europe, wrong about the rise of China, wrong about the continued strength of the United States, wrong about Iraq, wrong about Libya, wrong about Afghanistan, wrong about Trump. Of course they don't want you to look at a record. Of course they want to pretend that you can't foresee the future because they surely have not. And rather than look at a record, this is an EU where the world no longer corresponds to the norms by which its elite look at it. I just talked to the elite and they can't get over the fact that Brexit happened. They can't get over the fact that Donald Trump was actually president. They can't get over the fact that the EU isn't ruling the world. And rather than look at the facts as to why they're wrong over and over and over again with some humility, um, also when you get things right, you should look at what you did right. Rather than look at this analytically, they look at it in quasi-religious terms, eyes glazed over, saying, everyone makes mistakes, no one can read the future, meaning we can be wrong over and over again, and there are no consequences. Well, this may be true. There may be no consequences for European elites, but there are for Europe. The elites may live a happy life where none of them can be fired, where they continue to make six-figure salaries, go to lovely conferences and be wrong over and over and over again. But to pretend that 20 years of strategic drift haven't left Europe far down the great power run would be not looking the world in the face. Indeed, the link is it's precisely their being wrong over and over again that has led Europe to this pretty pass, to this falling position within the world. But by trying to keep the wolves away from the door, they are simply saying, everyone makes mistakes, so let's not look at the facts. Another example of this fact-challenged view was someone saying, when I said Angela Merkel has, you say she's a great crisis manager, name me a crisis she solved. And they said, well, she solved many crises. And I said, such as. This is a lot like the people who told me what a great president Barack Obama is. And when I said whether you agree or not beyond his health care plan, what did he accomplish practically in historical terms, very quickly would look at their shoes. These are the very people who want to ask about Hillary Clinton and what a wonderful senator and secretary of state she was. I would skeptically say, what did she accomplish in either position? And they would say nothing, though occasionally that she flew around the world a lot, to which I would reply, I too have a lot of frequent flyer miles. When you actually press people to empirically in facts-based way talk about what these leaders that they take is totemically, obviously good, that every right-thinking person would be behind them. And when you ask them what they actually accomplish, when I ask five separate people this question, Five separate times they chose not to give me a specific about Angela Merkel for the simple reason that you can't. 
There is nothing positive she accomplished. She kept the wolf away from the door from Germany in general. I would go that far. Like Louis XV, nothing happened under her watch, though nothing was solved. She threw plates expertly in the air tactically, but there was no strategy to Merkelism, and that's why Europe is in the state that it presently is. But rather than deal with this reality, they just say over and over again, a la a mantra, oh, she did a lot of good, to which I say, can you give me an example, to which they ignore my question five separate times for the simple reason is this is a religious view, a faith-based view. The same about Obama, the next most overrated person to Merkel, and the same about Hillary Clinton. I care about facts. I am an analyst. I analyze what's in front of me. This is what matters. This is what matters in the long run. And that's what we need to see. If you can't do that, you're just creating a false god that doesn't exist. And that's what they're doing. The other point that came up that fascinated me was AUKUS. And this is, again, leaving the facts at the door. Let's not let scary ideas in the room. Let's pretend here we're here on the Titanic and let's not even rearrange the deck chairs. And that's, in fact, what the European elites at my meeting were doing. I asked about AUKUS. And all they wanted to talk about was that the French were offended. The Australians went back on their deal and signed a deal with the Anglosphere. I don't particularly care if the French are offended. I don't care if they're going to snub me at cocktail parties. Again, the French being offended is part of their way of life. What I care about is why AUKUS happened. Why is the only question in the world that truly matters. And I ask this, why do you think AUKUS happened? Guilt-ridden, panic-ridden looks around the room, to which I say, because when push comes to shove, Australia would rather go in with people who have a common, coherent view over China rather than people who don't. You can't deter someone if you don't agree over the basics of what China is. Right now, we have Germany as a neutralist, mercantilist power, more worried about selling things to China. France willing to balance against China, but only if it's a separate pull from the United States in a Gaullist way. And Italy, Northern Europe, and Eastern Europe being much more pro-Atlanticist in a traditional way, meaning absolutely no agreement on policy at all. Obviously, you can't be decisive in helping an ally if you can't agree on the nature of the enemy. But rather than deal with this reality, rather than deal with the fact that the AUKUS merely proves the Australians pushed to the wall would rather work with people with a coherent foreign policy. They would rather say this is somehow about the French being offended, rather to talk about the surface issue, rather than answer the why, which is AUKUS shows that history is passing the EU by. Mrs. Merkel is totemic here. Either you master history or it masters you. And surely in this case, history has mastered Europe. And that's why it will be passed by. It's not that anyone's going to invade Europe. It's not that anybody hates Europe. It's a wonderful place to be. It's that it will matter and does matter already less and less and less because it is politically divided, geostrategically weak, strategically other than the French, impotent, and economically sclerotic. And not one word to that effect came across in the entire talk. And, and this happened. The next point to bring up is time. Time is never factored in, as though you have all the time in the world to solve your problems. Back to history mastering you. That the EU is doing its homework. If I had a dollar, as I said at the meeting, for every time anyone's told me this, I'd be a rich man. The EU is slowly doing incremental change that over a thousand years glacially will lead to a developing a common defense policy. The world won't wait for that to happen. 
Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping won't wait for that to happen. Frankly, America won't wait for that to happen. Europe doing things incrementally at some points means it's not doing them at all in absolute terms because practically time is passing it by. I love going to these meetings because they're like a time warp from when I started my career. People are literally talking about the same things. The French say Europe needs to do less with NATO, have its own common defense position, and move forward based on that. Never mention that whether it moves forward on its own or with NATO, nobody's spending enough money on defense. And that as long as Germany, Italy, Spain, and the smaller countries do not spend what the French do or have the capabilities the French have, it's not going to work. It's not going to work for Europe having a defense within the NATO umbrella. Outside of the NATO umbrella, the goal isn't to draw a pretty flow chart on the wall. The goal, the goal is capability. And without capability, you're wasting time. And they're so obsessed with the flow charts that they've lost sight of what is. As Aristotle said, what is, is one of the basic rules of Western civilization. And whether you like it or not, the Europeans do not spend enough on defense to be taken seriously by predators such as the Chinese. This has nothing to do with offending everyone. It is a fact. One of the wise old men at the meeting, and the only one to grasp what I was saying, did say at the end, he didn't think under any system the German people would ever spend enough money because they've gotten used to being bystanders in the world and they like it that way when they don't have to spend for defense, when they can retire early, have ridiculous benefit systems. And remember, Europe makes up 5% of the world's population, contributes about 20% of the world's GDP, and consumes 50% of the world's social spending. Utterly unsupportable, these six-week holidays. But boy, they want to keep them. And if that means staying out of a Cold War between the United States and the, Soviet, and, the, and the Chinese, the Europeans are willing to do that. Certainly the Germans are. And so however you slice and dice it, you can't go to a flow chart and say, suddenly if Europe is on its own, magically it's going to spend enough on defense. Magically it's going to get rid of its geostrategic problems. Magically it's going to deal with its economic sclerosis. It isn't the flow chart that matters. It's the decadence in the European society, that they are lotus eaters, that they are not willing to give up the way of life that they have to have the sacrifices involved to actually reform their system and maintain their great powers uh, situation. They're not prepared to do that. However, you draw it up on the wall. So this is another way to try to keep the wolf at the door. And then finally, the last point, which I found fascinating. When I began to press on these points saying, I don't want to hear about the FT, they're wrong about everything. You never factor time into these equations. You don't have forever to make these changes. And frankly, you've had my entire working life since I started this in 1999. And I've seen no sign of change. We're having exactly the same discussions. It's like a failed relationship. When you end up talking about the same things over and over again, the problems, you're stuck. They're stuck. And they're so stuck, they don't even see it. And that's the worst problem of all. But when I pressed hard on the fact that they're slipping down the great power rung, two of them independently turned on me saying, you gave us Donald Trump. As though mentioning his name was magic enough not to talk about the political risk problems in Europe. I accept that Donald Trump is a political risk problem. I accept that the United States has internal political issues that merit further discussion and are a danger to the United States. The polarization of the American parties is a giant danger. But that has nothing to do with the state of Europe. It's what used to be known in America, another logical circle, um, another nonsense. It's what used to be known as a whataboutism. 
because America has a problem, everything you're saying about Europe is no longer true. So we'd gone through all the stages here. Trump is a magic word meant we couldn't criticize Europe. We'll draw flowcharts on the wall rather than deal with what's in front of us. We won't allow for time in the analysis. We won't have any empiricism of any kind. And myriad intellectual errors don't matter. If we fail, we succeed. And if we succeed, we succeed. It was quite an education. I need to do these meetings, much as I hate them, more often, because they remind me that behind Europe's decline lies an ideas industry that surely is brain dead, and that this is one of the problems plaguing Europe. It has been intellectually stuck with very nice people going to very nice hotels for very nice conferences for a generation, and absolutely nothing has gotten better. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed mentioning what happened to me the other day and how it is a great symbol of European decline in practice and intellectually what's going on there. We need to look beneath things, beneath the waves, as to what really is going on, what sea monsters are out there, as well as what opportunities are there. I hope you enjoyed this. Those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do. Many of you have, and thank you so much. It's gratifying to see. And for those of you who have subscribed again, please do give. The $70 amount or the $7 a month amount either is great and move up. Substack works on the honor system. We think for the price of a Starbucks, the analysis we give you through the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, the Patrick Henry podcast, the book serialization, and all the other things we do are well worth a Starbucks a month. Please do subscribe as we're moving a lot of the content over to the paid subscribers as time goes on. I'm honored so many of you are doing this with us. This has been a great thing for me this year and I want to devote more and more time to it. Thank you ever so much.